0: Listening
1: to Nightlight. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of Nightlight. We have two guests on the program today, both talking about topics related to the end time. First of all, we have Paul McGuire, who is a minister and world news and prophecy expert, author of 26 books, including The Mass Awakening and The Day the Dollar Died. And he'll be talking to us about the keys of the kingdom.
2: We have a guest tonight on Nightlight.
1: Then, in the second half of the show, you're going to be meeting Bob Cornuke. He was a former police investigator and SWAT team member, now a renowned biblical investigator and international explorer, author of nine books. Bob's new book, temple, amazing new discoveries that change everything about the location of Solomon's temple is causing quite a stir in the Christian world. And we'll be talking with Bob, as I said, in the second half of the program. So lots to look forward to on this edition of Nightlight. Let's start with this from a Jeremy Spencer.
2: World full of trouble and woe. Trouble everywhere you go. People looking for just a little glimmer of hope. Love is dying in the heart.
1: Precious little, that's Jeremy Spencer.
3: You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world.
1: Time now to meet our first guest on Nightlight, Paul McGuire. I read an article, I think in 2013 from Paul that piqued my interest. And I'll just read you a few excerpts from it here. His article was called High Level Spiritual Warfare. And he wrote... Here in the U.S. and around the world, Christians are paralyzed by fear and the sense that they are powerless in the face of an all-powerful adversary. The emphasis is on retreating, hiding, and survival. The emphasis on survival, food, investments, etc. is not necessarily a bad thing, but ignoring the most powerful spiritual weapon in the universe can be fatal. God has given his people incredibly powerful spiritual weapons. Weapons that have the power to take down any invasion. If you don't like what you see in reality, then you must learn how to enter this invisible realm and access what some call the keys of the kingdom. These keys are spiritual mechanisms for changing reality. They are also referred to as spiritual weapons. They are the fastest, most efficient and powerful way to release power into the earth that can change reality. Think of the keys as a way to release the most powerful force in the universe into our reality. Although there are many things we must do on the physical level, we must understand that the primary battlefield is in the invisible realm. The only way we can win is by learning to use these powerful spiritual weapons in the invisible realm. Now is the time to use the most powerful spiritual weapons in heaven and earth. For the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. When these spiritual weapons are used by people who have been trained by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, they are more powerful than any technological weapon on earth. God can shake America and the world for God when we utilize the spiritual weapons that have been given to us for the last days. When the enemy comes in, the Spirit of the Lord Will raise up a standard against him.
3: End Time News
1: and Views. We have with us on the program Paul McGuire, and we're going to ask Paul about the keys of the kingdom and how underused they are. But first of all, Paul, tell us something about your background.
4: Sure. Um, I was raised in New York City uh, in an atheistic household. My parents believed in, I was taught when I was a young boy, I was an existentialist. Also grew up in a basically all-Jewish neighborhood. Uh, and But I had a spiritual void in me because I, my parents told me there was no God. So I began to look at Edgar Cayce and the occult and all that stuff. Then I got involved in radical politics. <clears throat> when I was 15 years old, I was demonstrating with the radical a- activist, Abby Hoffman. Uh, when I was like 16 years old, I was made an honorary member of the Black Panther Party. Uh, not that I ever believed in violence, which I did not. Uh, then I began getting involved in the New Age Movement and uh, studying it and experienced uh, the Great White Light, Cosmic Consciousness and my actual major <clears throat> at the University of Missouri was um, I had a dual major, filmmaking and altered states of consciousness which is a brand new field in uh, psychology. So I got to the campus and I began to meet these Christians. I thought they were idiots and I would rip them, depart, rip them apart in debate classes and unfortunately win. But God's hand was on my life and through a series of miracles, like a field of dream type of experience. Backroads of Missouri, I was invited to a Christian religious retreat about an hour outside of the campus. It confirmed my worst fears of what Christianity was. It was like a denominational country club thing. And I was disgusted. So I told the guy who invited me there I was gonna hitchhike back to the campus he told me God would take care of my rides home. I humored him out there by the cornfields. I stuck out my thumb. Pentecostal preacher and his wife picked me up, shared the gospel. I thought it was coincidence. The second ride was a Bible salesman driving a black station wagon with big black King James Bibles. He let go of the steering wheel, began preaching the gospel to me, told me I was a sinner, asked me. I didn't even believe in the word sin. To me, it was an archaic concept. So he said, do you want to pull off the side of the road and pray the sinner's prayer? Being from New York City, I thought it was a religious axe murderer, pervert, and he was going to chop my head and bury me in the bushes. I'm serious. But I don't know why I did it. I prayed the prayer. It was simple. It was something like, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to come into my life and make me born again. Didn't feel anything. Went out and got drunk. Then the next day, these Christians who witnessed to me... Uh, came to my apartment, and I began talking about it on the campus of the University of Missouri. I told them what happened to me the day before. This girl who was sitting down that none of us knew came up to us and said, excuse me for interrupting you. She said, I'm a minister's daughter. I just happened to be sitting here asking myself the very questions I overheard you guys talking about. Then she looked at me point blank, and she said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And then all of a sudden, I blurted out the words. I've never said this before in my life. I said, I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. When that happened, it was like the sky cracked open. I saw God, not in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense, but I knew that I knew that I knew that all the cosmic consciousness, altered states, they were all illusions, and I knew that Jesus was Lord. And so it changed my life forever.
1: Thanks, Paul, for sharing your testimony. It's always inspiring to hear somebody's personal testimony. Now, you've written, Paul, on many different topics. Uh, The one we'd like to talk about today is the keys of the kingdom. Can you expound on that?
4: Sure. That's a very important subject, and I'm glad you're asking me on that. I believe that we live in the last days. Now, when exactly Christ is returning or the Messiah is returning, I don't know. But Jesus said, occupy until I come, spiritually, of course. So, Jesus teaches his disciples, and he teaches us in his word, about the fact that he's given us the keys of the kingdom. So, what are these keys of, uh, of the kingdom? Well, they're kings of, uh, they're keys of authority. They're keys of, of, of rulership. They're keys of dominion. They're keys to release power or guidance or resources. They're keys of authority. So, But we have to use them. So, Jesus First, makes it a condition to using the keys of the kingdom that we have to abide in Him as He abides in us, and then whatever we ask in Jesus' name, it will be done for us. The key is that we're abiding in Him, that we have a real tight relationship with Him. And then Jesus says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, Jesus gives to every believer in Christ this very powerful spiritual authority of binding and loosing, of asking for things in prayer, of, of taking dominion over circumstances. And, and if we exercise that by faith, we can accomplish miracles and we can see the power of God move in situations, either personal or in a nation, uh, where we can see the power of God released and the powers of darkness driven away from a situation, if we will simply by faith do what Christ told us to do which is to take authority in, in our prayer and believe him at his word
1: Paul could you give us an example of how you do that
4: yeah now one just brief thing this this teaching unfortunately was was somewhat perverted and overused and and I believe it was distorted in the sense that people began to look at God like Santa Claus or you know you're going to snap your fingers and God's your heavenly butler, and he's going to give you whatever you desire. That's a perversion of a biblical truth. The, the key is we have to be abiding in Christ, which means that what we're praying for is, is the will of God. So, like, I don't go around praying that God would give me a jumbo jet and uh, a yacht because I know that's not uh, his will. Now, maybe he would give me a large boat, let's say, if I wanted to fe- bring in food to feed thousands of starving children. Yeah, I could, I could pray for it massive uh, vessel. So an example would be, in, in, in any situation in life, whether it's personal, interpersonal, or dealing with a nation, or whatever it is, that we, are, we don't like have a victim mode where we just resign ourselves to, to the circumstances, that we just say, well, I can't do anything about it. That, that victimhood is, 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 is an example of not having a renewed mind. So we have to take the authority that Jesus has given us because he said he made us more than conquerors and we are seated in heavenly places. That means we have a dual citizenship. You and I are talking here in the room physically, but spiritually we're in the throne room of God seated with Christ at thrones of rulership where we rule and reign with Christ and we will rule and reign with Christ forever. And so in his name, because the name of Jesus is above every name on heaven and earth, so whether it's poverty or whatever, we can exercise his authority. So so let's say we were praying, a lady came up to me a few minutes before you came up to me and was saying that her son, they came from a Jewish background, they received Christ as their Messiah, and the son kind of backslid and got involved in the occult and watches a lot of occult teaching. And he's nightmares and he's being tormented. Okay, So I believe that, uh, without getting into the theological debate of demon possession, I believe at the very least he's definitely being uh, oppressed by demons, which he opened up to. So somebody has to pray over that boy and take authority and command those demonic powers to be broken off of him. Uh, Just being nice and you know loving him isn't going to do it. There has to be there has to be a a, um, An encounter with the powers of darkness, so the prayer would go something like this Whether you were just sitting next to him or if you placed your hands on him or even if you're not near him You would say Lord Jesus Christ we come to you on behalf of whatever the boy's name is and in, in the name of Jesus Christ we command these powers of darkness to break their grip over his life and we Order Satan's power and every demonic power of the occult to be removed from his life in Jesus' name. And we command these spirits to be cast into the abyss, and we set him free in Jesus' name. Lord, send your power upon him. uh, Shatter uh, those chains of darkness and set him free in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we've simply done is we've exercised the authority that Christ's given us and there will be release it doesn't we may have to pray this repeatedly, but there is there's the beginning of a release. It may be instantaneous or repetitive, but there's the beginning of release. The power comes from the king of kings who is the biblical god. The power doesn't come from the keys. the power comes from what the king has invested in those keys.
1: Paul, why do you think so few people understand this concept?
4: There is such a you know I got saved. I shared how I got saved. And I just, you know, I had all kinds of demonic uh, because I had opened myself up to so many demonic forces in the New Age. Um, I didn't realize it, but I was still, I've never had, I'm not not talking about mental illness, but I, I heard demonic voices and I had these paranormal experiences even after I was saved. So there had to be a deliverance from that. And I found that deliverance when people began to pray for me and I began to pray for myself in the authority of Jesus' name. So I think there's a lack of, there's unbelief. The great seduction of the modern church is really this, the same seduction of Adam and Eve and throughout the ages. The great seduction is that we can accomplish the purposes of God in our own human strength. That was the sin uh, throughout the, the Old Testament. We can't accomplish anything except through the power of God. So, so what modern preachers are doing is they're preaching humanism instead of the power of God.
1: Paul, how are you received when you talk about the power of the keys, spiritual weapons, and the power of God when you talk at a church or some kind of religious meeting?
4: I try, uh, I try to speak in wor- well. In one sense, the language is inevitably going to bother some people and there's nothing I can do about it because their spirits are opposed to God moving and there's nothing I can do about that. But I try to be diplomatic in the sense that I try to choose terms and words that are not inflammatory theologically in the body of Christ. So, for example, I will never use the term baptism in the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's a problem with it. I try to avoid that because that argument has been going on. What I simply say is, we know that uh, people have received the Holy Spirit at salvation. I'm not here to debate, is there a second work of grace like the baptism of the Holy Spirit? But I am here to tell you that, that the Apostle Paul said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, however you want to arrive at that, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you come to God and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, because even people who say, well, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's not a one-time experience. Uh, and usually they, they uh, connect tongues with it. I don't deal with the issue of tongues because it's just, when I was an early Christian, that's all I heard was arguments about tongues. I, I keep the emphasis on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I, as you may have heard in my message, I I try to diffuse potential antagonism towards the power of God by belittling the extreme behavior that people often get into when they claim to receive the power of God. Because I think that scares away intelligent thinking people who would be open to the power of God if they see somebody who claims to be touched by the power of God rolling on the floor and barking like a dog, which I've seen. I was in Malaysia ministering and this girl was curling up in front of 5,000 pastors I was ministering and she was curling and twisting in the front and uh, finally I said can you please have her removed and they were, the pastors were like wow, are you 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 quenching the spirit and I said, I I taught them I said no, she's distracting the meeting so people can't hear the teaching and we all know the biblical uh, teaching that the spirit of a prophet is subject to the prophets and that God is in order of confusion if God is using a man to give a biblical teaching, why would he raise up a woman to cause people not to hear it because she's hollering and yelling. You know, you've you got to exercise wisdom.
1: Well, thanks so much for being with us on Nightlight. Anything else you'd like to share in closing?
4: The only thing I'd like to say in closing is that for your ministry and uh, the ministry and the lives of everybody uh, either hearing this on audio or radio or television or however they're hearing it, I just want to encourage them that, you know, uh, this is what Dr. Bill Bright taught me uh, when I was a young Christian, and I never forgot it. He said, think supernaturally and act supernaturally. And uh, to the degree I've experienced miracles and blessings in God's life, it's always been attributed to to, um, having, I don't claim to be a great man of faith. I think I have a microscopic mustard seed you know, not even mustard seed, a microscopic mustard seed. So I'll use that microscopic mustard seed, and I see miracles. That's Because that's all I can produce. I'm not going to lie. I don't have this enormous amount of faith. But I do have a microscopic mustard seed.
5: keys and it will be delivered unto you to you is given the great treasure of the keys that my power might be seen in you all power in heaven and over hell is yours for the asking all
1: power in heaven and over hell is yours for the asking and that's Samesh Cure song called All Power.
3: Did you know you can listen online or download your favorite nightlight shows, as well as other radio programs and audio inspirations produced at Radioactive Productions?
1: Visit our website today at radioact.org. And yes, please do visit our website at radioact.org. Also, we have a devotional website at treasures365.com. we're going to change topics now and we're going to be talking with our next guest on nightlight his name is bob Canuck, and he's a very well-known biblical archaeologist written a number of books including his most recent one called temple so we're going to be taking a visit to jerusalem Called Jerusalem from the Bible album, produced almost 40 years ago, and that was performed by Jeremiah Russell, who went to be with the Lord around 25 years ago. He's now up there in New Jerusalem, and that song was about the prophet Jeremiah warning about the destruction of of Jerusalem and the first Jewish temple by the Babylonians. The second temple, known as Herod's Temple, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And since then, there hasn't been a Jewish temple in Jerusalem, although the Jews have very much wanted to build a third temple on what they believe is the Temple Mount, where the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock now stand. And that's a very sensitive issue, even right now, between the Jews and Muslims. Anyway, we'll be talking about all of that with Bob Cornuke, a renowned Bible archaeologist and author of a new book called Temple. Nightlight,
3: keeping you in tune with the times.
1: Bob, thanks so much for giving your time to be with us. Bob, tell us first something about your background.
6: My background is uh, law enforcement. I've had some FBI training, was a police officer in Orange County, California, Worked uh, patrol and investigation both and just take those skills and I apply them towards uh, researching the Bible. It's a pretty simple process. Cop investigation, researching the Bible, using the Bible as a road map and sort of a compass. And then trying to find, is there really evidence to support this? And how would I get involved with searching and writing about the temple? I read a book by Ernest Martin and a fascinating book. After I read it, I was surprised that the world didn't just jump up and say, Why isn't this thing a bestseller? Because uh, it was just a fascinating book. And uh, um, I'm really the beneficiary of his groundbreaking research. So people say I've written such a fascinating book. I really have a lot to thank Ernest Martin for that. But what I try to do is just make the book a readable book and add a lot more facts that I'd come up with to to have a little ownership of it. And the book seems to be doing well, and it is causing quite a stir.
1: Well, it's causing quite a stir, of course, Bob, because in your book, you show beyond any reasonable doubt that the first and second Jewish temples never stood on what is known by Muslims as the Haram al-Sharif and by the Jews as the Temple Mount. First of all, maybe you could explain what is the Haram al-Sharif?
6: It's a the harem, the, a lot of people call it the Temple Mount, Dome of the Rock, the Alaska Mosque. It's this this incorporated area that I call the Temple Mount platform that is 36 acres that's up on the Temple Mount area, and uh, it's uh, controlled and uh, managed by the Muslims, and the Jews desperately would love to build their temple there. They believe it somewhere up on that platform. A lot of people say it's the south or the north or they're, they're all they're all they're not really sure to where the temple was but most people most people will say that is the area of where Solomon's and Herod's temples once rested.
1: Bob when I visited Jerusalem recently and was at the harem al-Sharif I was shown around 10,000 Herodian and pre-Herodian foundation stones which are still part of the harem al-Sharif today. Did these stones have anything to do with Herod's temple.
6: I think that all those stones that are up there today that you see uh, on the Haram are from a Roman fortress. Of course, there's been a lot of additions since then of people that have come in and conquered, moved around. But basically, a lot of those, I think uh, most of them were uh, generally part of a Roman fort called Fortress Antonio, named after Mark Anthony. It housed the 10th Roman legions, which was about 6,000 soldiers and about 4,000 support personnel. It would have been like a city up there. Uh, Josephus, in fact, describes it as being the size of several cities, but we see the Roman forts. We don't, don't see a couple of pup tents and a bunch of people walking around with spears and, and shields. You, it, was, it, was a, it was a machine. They had roads, they had bakeries, they had brothels, they had courtrooms, they had barracks. They had, they, it was like a, It was like a city and today we've never found any any remnants of where the Roman fort was. And of course the fort would have been quite large, and I think archaeology would have revealed something by now if it was located somewhere other than on the Temple Mount.
1: So does that mean that the western wall or the Wailing Wall had nothing to do with Herod's temple, and if so, what was it?
6: The western wall today, uh, a very interesting uh, thing happened there recently, is a, a a man by the name of Eli Shukran, who's the director of archaeology, found a coin underneath the very lowest stone, where the stones reach bedrock, under the Western Wailing Wall. And a lot of people have been arguing how old this was. Well, kind of it was settled because Eli Shukran dug underneath and found underneath the lowest stone that reaches bedrock. He found a coin of Valerius Gratus, who was the prefect of Rome under Tiberius Caesar. The coin dated to 20 AD. Very interesting because Herod died in 4 BC. So 24 years after Herod's death, we have this wall being built, attributed to Herod, which poses a lot of very interesting questions as to who really built this wall and why did they build it.
1: Bob, tell us more about the Fort Antonio. What was it? How large was it? And how do we know that it stood on the harem al-Sharif?
6: You know, when you're when you're we we try to say categorically that the Temple uh, Mount is where the Roman fortress is. In archaeology, uh, we're not 100% sure of of things, but I think there's a high degree of probability that it was there because it was the most dominating feature, and the Romans wanted to dominate the rebellious Jews. Herod would have never built a worship center that size. For the Jews, first of all, which would have dominated the entire region, the Romans would have held the high ground and held the fortress, and the temple would have been down in the in in, in the city of David. But it was it was monstrous in size. You, you just see the daily amount of just imagine a city of ten thousand people with with uh, you know you have to have transportation you know horses and carts and and chariots and then you'd have how do you feed them how do you repair their the 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 clothing and the things that they use for the horses and and the bakeries and the restaurants and, and the courthouses. It was a city. And there's nowhere else in Jerusalem that we have any evidence of a large presence like that. The only place that logically you can accept it being is on the Temple Mount and the temple being south of there in the city of David.
1: How long did Fort Antonio remain on the Haram Al Sharif?
6: Well, Fortress Antonia probably started his embryonic stages soon after Pompey came in in 63 B.C. and took, didn't really conquer the city of Jerusalem, they literally threw the gates open for the guy, Uh, because the Romans were just a very strong, mighty presence, and then they left, they stayed about a little over 300 years after that. So. I think it probably had sort of an ebb and flow, and a very mercurial foundation walls, depending on the size of the presence that the Romans had there, uh, their defensive needs. Uh, so it might have changed a little bit. We don't know, but what we have now is rectangular in shape, which is very consistent with other Roman forts around the world. If you look at Roman forts around the world, there are uh, most of them are rectangular in shape, and they fit generally with what we find at
1: the Haram, Bob, can you tell us a brief history of the harem after the Roman legion left Jerusalem? Were there any other buildings of significance that stood on the harem prior to the building of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, which, of course, still stand there today?
6: Well, I, I'm not sure what was on the Temple Mount after the Romans left. The only real structure that I know of probably came in the 7th century, when the Muslims conquered the area, and soon thereafter built the, the, uh, the Mosque of Omar, which is not really a mosque, and it wasn't built by Omar. But it is a, it is a, it is a worship center for the Muslims that feel that it's the third most holy place. And now, uh, I think it's after the 13th century that, that the tradition started that Muhammad left from there on his horse named Barak when he went into heaven.
1: So what was the rock that is under the Dome of the Rock, do you think?
6: Well, so there's a lot of people that have uh, questioned what, what is the rock doing under the Dome of the Rock. That's, the, that's pretty much what it was named after. Um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in what the Bordeaux pilgrim said in 333 AD uh, when he was at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. He, looked, he, he said he looked due west and all he could see was the long wall of the Roman fortress. That's very interesting, because when you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and look west, all you see is the long, long wall of the Temple Mount. So according to the Bordeaux Pilgrim, and what I can understand he is relaying through his words, is that he's actually looking at the Roman fortress, and he is describing also that that rock was the praetorium where the, where the prisoners would have stood on this rock when they were pronounced guilty. I think that's one of the most interesting ideas. Uh, you know, thought process on what is that dome of the rock.
1: Bob, tell us about the first temple, Solomon's temple. Is there any indication in the Bible as to where it was built? Well,
6: the first temple was built by, by Solomon. He, and, and the Bible does give us a, a specific place. Second uh, Chronicles 3.1 says that it was built over the threshing floor uh, uh, in, in, the, in the city of David. Uh, David had conquered the Jebusite fortress about 3,000 years ago. So David uh, was met by the angel of the Lord and told to buy the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and that Solomon built the temple right there. Well, the threshing floor of the Jebusite was in the city of David in the stronghold of Zion. Uh, there was n- there was no buildings up on what we see today as the, as the Temple Mount. Uh, it was a rock escarpment. What we're really talking about here is the Bible specifically telling us where the temple was built, and scripture is telling us that the temple was built in the city of David, more specifically in the Jebusite fortress on the threshing floor of Ornan, which is, I would assume, would be very close to the Gion Springs in some respects.
1: Give us a bit more history about Solomon's temple. When was it destroyed, and by whom, and how long was it before the second temple was built in Jerusalem?
6: I believe that Solomon's temple was destroyed during the Babylonian invasion in 586. And uh, to what extent it was destroyed, uh, we don't know. Um, we know that uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, uh, took, uh, you know, a, a lot of implements. From there, uh, Scripture talks about you know the door sockets on the the doors and the snuffers and stuff like that, and the shovels. But <laughs> there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. I think, which is very interesting. If it was in the manifest, uh, it wasn't mentioned. So it's very interesting that the that probably the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. So uh, we have we have a destruction there, a burning of it in 586, and then uh, rebuilt by Herod, uh, and destroyed by Herod in about. 70 AD uh, with uh, Titus.
1: Bob, is it correct to say there have only been two Jewish temples or have there been other temples besides the ones built by Solomon and Herod?
6: Uh, You know, the the, the most common temple designations are the first temple, Solomon's second temple being Herodian. But there have been other temples. There's been as much as six suggested uh, we know of Zerubbabel's temple, for instance, which was, not, you know, was certainly not as grandiose, uh, and even the the rabbis cried because it wasn't as grandiose. But, but we have other temples that were uh, started, stopped, and uh, you know, during the process. But the the two main temples we usually talk about are the first and second temple.
1: Well, Bob, if the temples, as you postulate, never stood on the harem Al Sharif or the Temple Mount. And where did they stand?
6: If the temples didn't stand on the Haram, I believe that they are in the city of David. Most definitely the Bible suggests it. We have historians that talk about it being there. We have uh, the Bible describing uh, as needing a water source. We have the Gion Springs right there. Uh, We have uh, Solomon being anointed king in the city of David at the Gion Springs. Um, we have, uh, the Bible saying many times that in this, the, in the stronghold of Zion, that is, you know, the God's holy mountain And Joel talks about the holy mountain being in Zion. Well, holy mountain is the temple. So we have a lot of biblical references that point to the city of David and really nothing, nothing that points to the temple Mount.
1: Well, let's turn our attention now to the Gihon spring. What is the Gihon spring? And what's its significance in relation to the location of the temple?
6: Well, the Gion Spring has been an, is an ancient water source that's been talked about uh, going way back to the time of uh, Solomon. Uh, the The springs uh, are still running today. They're not of the force of water that they were a long time ago. A lot of the a lot of you know Jerusalem has been dug up, and the rock uh, might have through fracturing and modern construction have uh, precipitated that. But the Gion Springs has been this this ribbon of water that's the lifeblood of the City of David. It's like water pumping through the veins of a a human. The City of David has this water pumping through it, which gives his life, and and gave it, the reason that David even took it was probably that water source. But But you need to have flowing water in this ceremonial of the cleansing of several things the priests going in the temple to worship. You need spring water to add to the ashes of the red heifer for purification. So water is essential, and there's no water on the Temple Mount, To trad- the traditional Temple Mount up above. Uh, there, there was no water source there, no springs. There was water coming in from South Bethlehem on two aqueducts, but you, that certainly is not spring water.
1: Bob, when I was in Jerusalem recently, I went to the Israeli Museum, and in the gardens of the Israeli Museum is a very elaborate model of Jerusalem constructed in 1973 by the famous historian Michael Avi Yari. Millions of people have seen this model over the years. If you were given the liberty to do so, Bob, what alterations would you make to that model of Jerusalem in Jesus' day that stands? on the grounds of the Israeli Museum?
6: You know, the model that we have at the Israeli Museum is a beautiful model. I mean, it is, it's been painstakingly, uh, it's a great piece of art, but a poor piece of historical uh, reflection. Uh, For instance, I believe that the Roman fort there is uh, ridiculous. Uh, it's just this little appendage. Uh, looks just, it, it just, <laughs> the mighty Roman fortress has been reduced to this small little caricature that they have there uh, in that model. So uh, I don't think that the model maker there made an accurate representation. But what he did do is he's impregnated into the mind of a lot of visitors a warped concept of the size of the Roman fortress and where the Roman fortress is. I'm really surprised that most people don't go up and say, this is ridiculous. What do we have this here for, this size and this dimensions? The Roman fortress was immense, and it wasn't just this small little appendage that they have there, because we know that they had the 10th Roman legion, which was about 10,000 people. That that area could have held maybe a couple hundred people that we have at the, the model at the at the israeli museum
1: bob how total was the destruction of jerusalem by the romans in 17 AD? was jesus's prophecy in matthew and luke that not one stone in the temple would be left standing upon another was that literally fulfilled
6: jerusalem was pretty much destroyed we're talking about hiroshima you see hiroshima where it's just you see a few standing little you know walls and whatnot pretty much was eradicated uh, Eliezer in seventy three uh, during the who was the the general Masada said, Masada said that uh, everything and dis- everything was with utter destruction except for that of the camp of the Romans, which is the Roman fort. So everything was destroyed. So I think that when you talk about in seventy A.D. what was destroyed, I think the temple was destroyed to the very foundations. Josephus said that you wouldn't even know that there was a city there where the temple stood in seventy A.D. Thus fulfilling. The prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24, when he said that all the stones, every stone, utterly, completely and totally down to the very foundations would be destroyed. So I think we have a fulfillment of prophecy if we correctly identify where the correct location of the temple is located. Uh,
1: Who was Josephus and how reliable was his testimony?
6: Josephus was a first century historian. He was Jewish. Uh, commander that was uh, conscripted to be sort of a, a, a historian of sorts. Um, his writing is, is impeccably accurate. Uh, people say, oh, he's so great of a historian, except when he's talking about the temple, and then, then he just seems to have this weird perception of history. No, he had a perfect perception of history. He knew where the temple was. He knew it was destroyed down the very foundations. So historians say, well, he was great up until he talked about the temple, but no, he was right about the temple. We have been wrong. So I I think we should follow the first century eyewitness as opposed to a 21st century guessing observant person. Well, how
1: did it come about, Bob, that Jews, Christians, and Muslims came to believe that the temple stood on the Haram el sharif or the Temple Mount, not over the Gihon Spring?
6: There's a lot of there's a lot of argument as to when people started believing that the temple was on the temple mount. My my personal belief is that when the in 1099, when the crusaders conquered the uh, the temple mount complex today, and they saw the muslim dome with the crescent moon on it, they ripped it off. They put a cross on there, called it the uh, templum domini, which is Latin for the Lord's temple. And from that point on, it became very popular throughout Europe that that was the temple area. Uh, people did argue about it for some extent. They didn't know where the real temple was. But in time, they, they just settled on it. Uh, there was a man named Tudela, Benjamin Tudela in the 12th century, very charismatic man, uh, uh, rabbi. And he said, hey guys, let's just settle on this. And people have, and tradition has sent its taproot down and taken root in both the church and both the Jewish belief systems. And from that point on, it's become historical fact, when I think it's been terribly, terribly mangled in history, and we have a wrong perception of where the temple is located uh, traditionally, because it should be in the city of David.
1: Of course, this is huge, because if those of the Jewish religion could accept what you and a growing number of other Bible archaeologists and researchers are saying— then there'd be no obstacle to the Jews building their third temple, not on the Haram al-Sharif, but in the city of David, near or over the Gihon Spring. And this would diffuse so much of the tension and animosity that exists between Jews and Muslims over what has been called the most explosive piece of real estate in the world. But Bob, do you believe that no matter how overwhelming the evidence that Jewish political and religious leaders will ever accept that the temple once stood over the Gihon spring? Or is tradition just too strong?
6: I think traditions are too strong until uh, an event occurs, which makes people really look at the facts. Um, So until that time, I think we're going to have tradition is going to be stronger than historical fact. But Tradition can change, but it takes a wrecking ball event to make that change in paradigm.
1: Of course, we know from Bible prophecy that a third Jewish temple will be built. Bob, according to your understanding of Bible prophecy, tell us about this third temple and the part that it will play in end time events.
6: Well, there's going to be two more temples uh, in the future. One is the Tribulation Temple, Uh, where in three-and-a-half years the Antichrist will go in and uh, commit the abomination of desolation and declare himself to be God. That will trigger another three-and-a-half-year event of great tribulation, wars like we've never seen. Christ will return. There will be the millennial temple that he and the world will build. All nations were gathered to that. Uh, And there will be the millennial reign, and uh, Christ will rule and reign.
1: There's nothing in Bible prophecy about the third temple being destroyed at the battle of Armageddon. Of course, Revelations chapter 11 verses 1 through 3 does talk about the temple being cleansed. Do you personally believe that the coming third Jewish temple will be different to the one that Jesus rules from during his millennial kingdom?
6: I think that the the Bible doesn't talk about the tribulation temple being destroyed, but there will probably be some pretty disastrous uh, events in Jerusalem and it's logically uh, can be concluded. I, I think that it will be destroyed in some way, shape, or form, or at least diminished in, in its posture to, to a point where people won't even know that it was a temple. And then, the, and then during the millennial times, a new temple will be built somewhere in Jerusalem. Uh, I speculate that it's in the city of David. Others speculate it will be at another location. But in any event, there will be a millennial temple.
1: Bob, tell us about your book, Temple now. Besides confirming Ernest Martin's research, have your investigations uncovered any other evidence that show that the temple stood over the Gihon spring and not on the Haram al Sharif?
6: Uh, Ernest's book is groundbreaking. Uh, I get too much credit in my book, and he doesn't. Uh, he was really the he was really the groundbreaker of all this. And 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 what I've done is that I've tried to come alongside him, metaphorically speaking and do my own set of research. And as I've started to do research, I added a lot more layers from what I found biblically, historically, through Flavius Josephus. Um, and more recently, we have uh, I've been a part of doing research of a, of a sanctuary underneath the area of the Gion Springs, and which I think has great implication, I think is part of possibly Solomon's temple because there's blood channels in places where they did the uh, they crushed the oil for the anointing. Um, you can see where they tied up the animals, doing a lot of sacrifices, a lot of killing of animals there. And that, of course, is probably, if this is the place of Solomon's temple, related to the sacrifices during that time and maybe after that. So we're now finding a lot of other things. Archaeology is not a is is not a science. It's an art. We have to go through and we have to figure out what this stuff says. But Ernest Martin did a fabulous job, and hopefully he'd be pleased with the additions that I've added to his research.
1: Bob, thanks so much for taking your time to share this with us. Are there any other points that you'd like
6: to add? Just that I'm very appreciative of Ernest Martin and the family and David Seeloff and the Ask Foundation for All, that they've done to allow me to be a part of this and actually encourage me to continue this work. Uh, I think that's a real example of good Christian you know, cooperation between between different entities that are that are it's a model of how we should work together. So many people are not working together today, and I'm so appreciative of, of Ernest Martin's memory, and I'm appreciative of David Seeloff and all that he's done to help me in my ministry, and hopefully have helped them and theirs as well.
3: Nightlight, keeping you in tune with the times.
1: Well, from earthly Jerusalem, from where Jesus will establish his millennial reign, let's travel to the heavenly Jerusalem, which at the end of Jesus's 1,000-year reign on earth will descend to the new earth and become the headquarters of God's eternal kingdom. And where there's no need for a temple, because as it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Words of this song taken directly from the scriptures in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, from the King James version of the Bible. And
3: I saw a new heaven, and I saw a new earth, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first. And the first earth were passed away And John, saw the holy, saw the holy city,
0: New Jerusalem,
3: coming down, coming down from God, out of heaven, New
0: Jerusalem,
3: she prepared as a bride adored for her husband, New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, from out of heaven. The Holy City New
0: Jerusalem
3: Coming down Coming down from God Out of heaven
0: New Jerusalem
3: Prepared as a bride Adored for her husband
0: New Jerusalem
3: New Jerusalem And God shall wipe away All tears from their eyes And there shall be no more death Neither sorrow nor crying. The former things are past. i
1: so much to our guests Paul McGuire and Bob Canuck for their contribution to the program. The groundbreaking book that Bob Canuck was referring to is called The Temples That Jerusalem Forgot by Ernest L. Martin, who's now gone to be with the Lord, but whose research you can still check out on his website at askelm.com. Well, that's it for now, and I'll look forward to be back with you next time for another edition of Night light. Bye bye. <music>